Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey! All ports belong to us, Knockrider. <laughs> On today's episode, uh, we'll be discussing the, the gap in patch management when it comes to critical systems. We'll go over the latest zero-day vulnerability in Chrome and really any application running Chromium and the latest in a series of legislation that has made its way to President Biden's desk. Now with that, let's go ahead and sign our way in. So let's start by addressing what was actually a news story, I guess, back in late February, uh, where we actually had a coordinated disclosure with the FBI and the United Kingdom's GCHQ on the existence of a sophisticated nation-state developed botnet that was targeting, among other appliances, watchguard fireboxes uh, that had, against best practices, administrative access exposed to the internet. Um, now, we hope to share some more technical details on this one day, but for now, our primary concern is still ensuring that our customers continue to follow the detection and remediation plan that we laid out as part of that disclosure. Now, if you're a watchguard customer, first and foremost, and you have no idea what we're talking about, uh, please make sure you go to detection.watchguard.com and follow those four steps. Um, but I mean, while we've had like the protected firmware releases we put out on February 23rd were the most rapidly adopted releases we've ever released, we're still not at quite 100% coverage based off the telemetry we have. Yeah, I mean, first, we do want to mention good news. A lot of customers and partners out there that use our product are doing fantastic. Uh, at a high level, we've seen 10 times faster uptake on this firmware uh, than we've ever seen before in the history that we've recorded. So the good news is many of you are getting to this really quickly, which is great. It's what we recommend. But I do think one of the things we talk want to talk about that has some nuance is there's still a large portion of people that haven't done anything. Uh, they haven't upgraded to this protected release. And by the way, uh, the vulnerability itself uh, is only exposed if you expose WatchGuard management portals to the entire internet. You know, That's not a best practice. If you read our documentation, you should be limiting access. And we also do notice there's still folks with exposed management ports. So I think what me and Mark want to talk about today is, is the vulnerability window. When vendors and others release things, uh, have a good update, what is it that holds people back from upgrading quickly? And what can we do to improve that upgrade time? Yeah, and I guess like this is this is an issue that's like across the whole dang industry. Like I feel like you and I see news article after news article almost every month of like some vulnerability that was patched uh, years ago or months ago that is now becoming the flavor of the month for cyber criminals to go after organizations. Like, I think you have a pretty good example, one of relatively recently, right? Yeah. And by the way, this is a competitor of ours technically, but we're actually in this case, the company we wanted, the example we want to talk about is Fortinet. And by the way, Fortinet did everything right. I actually think in this case, Fortinet did what I think is a really fantastic vulnerability disclosure process. And yet it's a perfect example of, of the topic we're talking about. So to, to really highlight the topic, around September of 2021, so just late last year, uh, stories came out 
that 50, or I'm sorry, bigger than that, 500,000 Fortinet VPN credentials were exposed. Uh, they were private VPN credentials. They were digital certificates and keys associated with remote access. They were found on the dark web. Threat actors were sharing and leaking them. And it was because tons of, of, of Fortinet, you know, their SSL VPN appliance, tons of them had been hijacked, hacked to steal these credentials. I think there was a total of uh, 22,500 entities that were affected and 3,000 of those were in the United States. So that sounds bad. Like if you read that headline, oh my gosh, someone hacked Fortinet's appliance. Here's the rub. The way these credentials were stolen was exploiting a CVE from 2018. It was a security flaw that Fortinet had patched in 2019. It was a fixed issue. So this was nothing Fortinet had done wrong. There was a security vulnerability in their product. Yes, by the way, that you can argue, and this is goes for us and every other software vendor out there, there will be security vulnerabilities in your product. And that is something that the vendor has to take care of for you. And I hopefully you guys uh, pick vendors that handle these vulnerabilities quickly, try to avoid them in the first place, and then transparently let you know if they exist. And in this case, Fortinet did all that back in 2019. And this leaked in 2021. And that suggests the problem we really want to talk about. This is two years later, or a little under two years later, bad guys were still exploiting this, this patched thing, this thing that there was a fix for. So I, I think Mark and I just want to discuss something you've heard before, which is patch. Why? What holds us back from patching? And there is some. There is nuance, though. These are gateway devices, so there's certainly nuance there. So maybe we should talk about what can what can the industry do to help users whether it's of network gear software whatever when there is a fix for things how can we help you apply them quicker yeah and i mean i guess like you said there's there is nuance to it like in order to apply a patch it typically requires a reboot on almost all of these major systems now we're strictly talking about network gateways here this can be applied for a lot of critical systems as well and that it's there's generally Especially hardware right right yeah. mark I, uh, software often, re like Windows OS often requires a reboot too, but when you're dealing with hardware, a firmware update is, is slightly different than a yep. typical software update. Yeah, but even then, like this is the, half the point of it is setting up a, a proper patch management program within your organization to deal with that downtime and plan accordingly. And it, it feels like, I mean, even from just, even before all of this, like even understanding our telemetry of, firmware update uh, processes across our customer base, like sometimes tends to take a decent amount of time for people to get onto it. And part of it is, you know, maybe you're just not paying attention to the latest releases. I'd argue you absolutely should because there's security fixes in almost every release for every product in the world, basically. Um, could just be, you know, I'll delay it until later, but. Yeah, to throw some help there, what should you pay attention to? Well. Uh, in your product, like if you go, if you're using our web UI, for instance, it should be able to tell you when there's a new update available. If you use WatchGuard Cloud, for instance, with Fireboxes, there's also a place to go where there's an update available. I will say one thing our team is working on that we don't have yet is a, a P-cert page. So I, I won't talk about that now, but more on that soon. But today, besides the product telling you when an update's available, we recommend the WatchGuard product blog. This, this is different. 
than the simplicity. This is our more product oriented thing than our, our security thought leadership or our security advice. But on the product log, when we have a new release, it's posted there and we talk about uh, one, the good features in the release, the features you might want to want you want, but we also talk about if there's security fixes that you, you care about. And of course, that product blog will link to the release notes. So if you're wondering, how do I learn if there's an update beside today, besides the, the, the product itself, like the web UI, do make sure you're following WatchGuard's product blog. Sorry, sorry, Mark, to your point, I just wanted to make sure they knew where to look for Yeah, things. and what I'm getting at is in general, like it, it, at a minimum, establish a process of regularly checking in for all of these systems that you have deployed so that, you know, if you happen to miss the notification or the advisory or you just don't log into the product very often, like at least you proactively go out and see, is there something that I potentially need to install on here? Because, I mean, this goes for everything. Like you will have software updates, application updates, system updates for everything. And some of those will fix critical vulnerabilities that you really need to. Address. And I would say focus maybe, I, I think companies have naturally started to do this with traditional software because one, a lot of vendors kind of, because traditional, my Windows OS is frankly easier to update than a firmware of hardware. And because of that, I think we all know that Microsoft, Adobe, Apple, they have a patch day every month. So it's pretty easy for you as a company to time. You, you don't have to worry about reminding yourself because you know the patch day is going to happen. You can maybe make a point of two days after that, you're you're doing the whatever work you need to do for software. But I think what people forget is hardware. Because hardware is not in your face, you know, it's sitting in a land room. It's not you don't see the Windows update pop up on your desktop because your desktop is Windows. You have to take a little more action to remind yourself. And I, do you have a recommendation, Mark, for frequency? Like I, I would admit the one thing with hardware is it doesn't update quite as often as, as traditional software. I wouldn't say we're releasing something big every month, but maybe have a reoccurring thing every quarter, or if you do want to check more often every month, to go and check hardware for updates. Honestly, what I see recommended and what I also recommend is at minimum timing it with Microsoft Patch Tuesday. The reality is yeah. most organizations that out is there the excuse. are Microsoft yeah. shops. And so on the second Tuesday of every month, you're probably looking at or installing some update and just make that the day that you check the rest of your systems as All well. All of them, yeah. And remember hardware, that's the, the main takeaway is that we tend to forget hardware when we're thinking about software updates. Hardware has software updates too. And this is- So I think that that's an excellent point, Mark. I think that makes it easy as possible. And this is where a good asset management program can help out as well too, where you have a registrar of all of your systems that you've got deployed. And most of these asset management applications can also let you know when there's a patch available for some of these systems because they hook into vendor feeds. So absolutely utilize one of those if you can uh, justify the- the, the budget for it. Yeah, as well, and I, I would also say uh, WatchGuard is thinking about this too. We're the reason we're talking about this and kind of asking about this. We'd love to hear your feedback on this, by the way, is because we want to. We are going to do our best to make sure that our end of the deal, our security is held up and we get updates to you quickly and transparently when there are security issues. But we want to, to help you 
get those applied as quick as possible. So we are looking at other ways where we can help notify you. So do do know our product team is using this as excuse. I, I Because it's a hardware product, I don't think we can force over the air updates like something like a car would, or, or I'm sorry, at least a phone. Uh, that's probably too aggressive because the other side of this issue is it is a key product. Uh, but do know we're looking for ways to make sure that you at least know the update is available. We have some of those mechanisms today, but we're looking for more. I do want to, to actually just directly confront the one elephant in the update process, though, Mark, and that is people being afraid of updates breaking stuff. So for instance, there's an amazing security update you want, but maybe five years ago, an update broke a networking feature that brought your, your network offline. I think everyone's had the experience where they load a Microsoft patch. Maybe it hasn't happened in, in years, but 10 years ago, suddenly you can't open email anymore. That is an issue that you have to think about. But uh, do you have any comments on that, Mark? I, I certainly have some. It's a bit more difficult with a, a hardware-based system where you probably don't have you know, a second one that you can run these tests against, like you can a Windows server, like spin up a second copy of your domain controller and make sure, make sure it works. This is where just with your patch management schedule, like planning downtime, over planning, making sure that, you know, Monday night or whatever, when you apply this patch, you've got enough of a, a bleed out window to address any potential issues that come up. Um, but then also like a lot of it comes on the vendors themselves to make sure that they are putting out quality patches, which I feel like have consistently approved across the board in the whole industry. And, and you guys should feel that we are doing that. Like I, we're never going to not make mistakes. Humans are humans, things happen, but we work very strongly on quality. So I, I would like to think you see that less issues happen. But Mark, what you said is exactly where I was going. And the only thing I would add when you're, you're creating a policy for downtime to upgrade hardware, as Mark said, you should realize part of that downtime is not just planning enough time to do the upgrade, but keeping enough time for anything additional. The good news is we do have mechanisms to recover the last firmware quickly. So if you look into our product, you, you, if you load an update and it doesn't do something for you, by the way, uh, there might be a nuance in the Cyclops Blink one. We are one of our security mechanisms now for, forces us to only run secure signed firmware. So by the way, I will say downgrading in Cyclops Blink is a little different, but in general, you'll notice many of our products will allow you to go back a firmware too and just understand what those options are before you do the upgrade because yes things happen but just because those things happen in a very you know niche amount of cases doesn't mean you shouldn't take advantage of the value of getting the security as quickly as possible 100% and before we pivot off this topic i wanted to address the other side of the coin which is continuing to expose management access to the internet. Like you actually, Corey, published a pretty good post on Secplicity just a few days ago, uh, basically pointing out that this is also a systemic issue across the industry too. Like you pointed out some research where there were 20,000 instances of data center management products exposed to the internet. And like, I mean, I get it. Some of the reasons this happens, like, you know, remote uh, work made us have to quickly pivot to providing remote access to stuff. Sometimes administrators cut corners. Uh, but the reality is like there are not just management, but a lot of systems out there that should not be exposed to the Internet. And when they are, they tend to bite you. 
like VPN filter with consumer routers with that exposed, the Mirai botnet with any IoT device at all exposed to the internet, the Kaseya breach if you had your VSA server uh, exposed to the internet. Like this is a repeating cycle that, I mean, I feel like we've got to be coming close to a head of people finally doing yeah, better access. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, I, I think most of our listeners know this, but an administrative management portal is just about the most high risk important thing you need to protect. You, If you have any piece of gear that has an administrative management portal, that is not something you want people getting access to. Now, I realize these portals use SSL VP, or I'm sorry, they use SSL uh, TLS encryption. Hopefully TLS, and they not have SSL. <laughs> SSI, that's why I said SSL TLS encryption, just because yeah. people still call it both. Uh, but, uh, but the end, they have authentication portals. So yes, there is a lock on that door, but I don't think those doors are made to be exposed to everyone. We talk about zero trust, which is the least privilege principle. Why does everyone in the world need to be able to get to the door, whether it has a lock or not, to your most important management system? In the article, I talk about NORAD. NORAD is that they have a big command center where you've probably seen it in the movie War Games, where they are trying to, in case of a nuclear war, that's where they take care of that and, and make sure they're protected from it. The door to NORAD's command center isn't right in the middle of Times Square. It's buried 2,000 feet under a mountain of granite. It has 25 door pound doors in front of it. And before you even get to that 25, I'm sorry, 25 ton doors in front of it, there's miles and miles of gates and checkpoints. They don't let every, even though the door has a lock, they don't let anyone get near that door unless they've already validated it. And that's that that anecdote is just to illustrate Mark's point. Remote management, it's a must nowadays. People have to remotely access this, but there's secure ways to do it. You don't just have to expose the portal to the internet. You can VPN. If you are going to expose the portal without additional protection, at the very least, use a limited access control list. Just one or two dynamic domains or IP addresses that you know that are allowed to do it. And you've said all the cases. It's not, yes, this is one of the parts of why Cyclops Blink was a thing, but it's every, nowadays, every product in the world has this management portal. NAS devices have been hacked because of the management portal. You mentioned Kaseya. And by the way, again, not pointing fingers at competitors at all, but recently competitors, including SonicWall and Ford, I'm sorry, SonicWall and Sophos, both had significant vulnerabilities in the management portal that they announced uh, just last week. And by the way, that's not bad on them. They did a fantastic job taking care of that, but it's just another example of why you don't want these management portals exposed to anyone. It's not something that should be done. 100%. So if you take nothing else away from this, A, make sure you've got a good vulnerability and patch management process to address potential security weaknesses in all your systems. And B, that for covers the love hardware of God, too. yes, please <laughs> stop exposing management access to the internet for anything that you care about because you're just asking for trouble at that point. So with that said... Let's move on to our next news topic for today, where last week, uh, Google released a emergency patch for CVE 2022-1096, which was a type confusion vulnerability 
in the V8 JavaScript engine, which is used in Chrome and any Chromium-based application. I'll get into that a little bit more in a second. Uh, as part Good, of their because I'm sure type confusion probably confuses some folks. <laughs> exactly, and why JavaScript needs a V8 engine. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> as part of their disclosure, uh, they noted that they had seen this actively exploited in the wild as well. Um, so honestly, this was the first time in recent memory for me that I've noticed that Google that Google published a patch that fixed just a single issue. Uh, in fact, this one was reported to them on the 23rd of March and then patched quickly on the 28th. So you can tell how serious of a flaw it really was. Um, now, details on the vulnerability haven't been disclosed as of the time of this recording. Um, but they did list it as a type confusion flaw, which is one of the more, I wouldn't say complex, but at least technically nuanced styles of vulnerabilities and deserves a little bit of an explanation. Uh, I mean, we've talked about, you know, buffer overflows and other styles of memory corruption bugs where you're able to send more data to a, a memory buffer than it's designed to hold. And that can allow you to ultimately control the stack and control the program, which then lets you gain code execution as well. Uh, type confusion is really just another type of this memory corruption vulnerability, where most programming languages have what are called typed variables, meaning you don't just say it's a variable, you say, oh, it's a integer, so it holds a number, or it's a string, so it holds a list of characters, or it's an array where it can hold a collection of a bunch of values, etc. Um, and compilers know how to interpret these values, and in general, they've got protections for mixing and matching these values and calculations, like most programming languages will stop you from trying to get a sum of a integer and like a string because you can't exactly add a string and a number together and get a number. Um, some of them are loosely typed and they have like some implicit conversions. Uh, like in Python, for example, uh, when you're using a variable that's a number, uh, depending on what you're using it for, it could either uh, do arithmetic on it or it could use it as a type of string. In the C programming language though, uh, there's a specific data type that's called a union, which allows programmers to store different types inside of a single memory location. Now, this type of data type gives flexibility to programmers when they're designing their code and building it. But in the end, it can cause some issues where an application sets a variable, assuming it's one type, and then accesses it where it thinks it's a different type. For example, if you set a variable where it thinks it's an integer just holding a number, and then ultimately access it as like a pointer to something else. It could allow you to read different memory locations that you weren't as a developer intending it to do in that application. In the end, this can lead to memory corruption, which then ultimately can lead to code execution. Um, so that's your super 10,000 foot level overview of type confusion and why it is a potentially serious flaw. Uh, and in this case, Google patched one in the V8 engine for uh, JavaScript engine in Chromium. So Chromium being the open source technically platform that Google Chrome runs off of, uh, Edge and Brave are two other browsers that use it. Um, you may not know it, but many of your desktop applications are actually built on Electron JS, uh, which is technically a Chromium engine. I think like the Teams app, uh, Slack, uh, what else is on there? Most, of, I think OneNote as well, they're all Chromium based, technically running a Chrome based browser to display and render the application. So you can see why something like this, a, a vulnerability of this caliber inside a application of that size and usage could be such a serious issue. Now, to you, Corey, real quick, I wanted to see like what your thoughts were on 
So chromium is widely used across the industry and like almost every I think it's got like a total of 95 percent of the browser share, like Firefox and Safari are the only two non chromium based browsers with any substantial use. Like, is that a good thing that there's kind of this homogenized use of a single open source platform? Or do you think it's a bad thing where now a single flaw can impact so many different systems? That's an excellent question. Uh, but I, the one thing I do like is Google to me is one of the leaders in, uh, uh the way they do disclosure and fixing, 100%. Uh, like for instance, we're talking about making you sure, you know, an update is available. I'm speaking here, Chrome, but I believe the capability can be in any Chromium based browser too. But I was going to anecdotally say this makes sense because recently in Chrome, I had my little orange and then red update button. Uh, in the top left corner now, uh, there's literally something that will pop up saying there's an update ready. And it will start out as orange, but if you ignore it, it will turn to red uh, and force you to update. And recently, by the way, I did that. And then a day later, I got another update and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> and by the way, it, it was this. But the point I'm trying to make is I think what you're saying is that does put a lot of target on Chrome. Vulnerabilities found in there have a very wide attack surface. But one of the reasons I do think there should, you know, my personal view is there should be choice and other vendors out there uh, so that, you know, one, just for consumers, we have a wide variety of markets and two, that we don't have too much attack surface in one place. But I have to say, I actually really respect the security of Chrome. So if there's one that has to have 95% of the market or whatever it is, I think they're doing a good job at making sure things are updated quickly and easily. And of the software I have to update, I see that button, I save my tabs, I press update, and 30 seconds later, Chrome is open again. So yeah, you're right. It does put a lot of attack surface in one place and makes a lot of browsers besides Chrome vulnerable to the same thing. It'd be like Log4j. It's just an industry-wide thing that's used in a lot of places. But the, the positive is, at least in this particular time, Google and the Chrome team seem to be doing a good job at at least following, everything's going to have vulnerabilities. Uh, they follow good practice to make sure they get handled quickly. And it is an open source project, which means they aren't the only people able to contribute to it as well. And even view, uh, excuse me, view the source code in order to find some of these flaws too. So, yeah, I think I'm with you on that. I think my main concerns with Chrome or Chromium rather are mainly just around, you know, once you homogenize the entirety of the Internet around a single engine like this, it makes it difficult. Like it basically every website defaults to that is the one we're going to cater towards, which makes it more difficult for others like Firefox to come into. But I guess from a security perspective, it is probably a good thing that there is this single engine behind the scenes that receives so much attention. I have to imagine that like this flaw. Uh, so they said it was reported by an anonymous group of researchers. I have to imagine that as it was being exploited in the wild, it was probably worth quite a bit. Like you could imagine a zero day vulnerability within a web browser that 95% of the world uses could be worth quite a lot to go after people with watering hole attacks and other similar style of attacks. So if you are using Chrome and like Corey said, you have that red button there telling you to upgrade. Uh, make sure you hit that button. I don't think you even need to save your tabs. I'm pretty sure it does it for you and then pops it right back up when it's done. Uh, now, moving on to our final story. 
So last week, President Biden signed the latest congressional appropriations bill into law, which if you're a cybersecurity freak like us, you might think, why do I care about that? Uh, well, buried in the hundreds of budgetary pages were actually new requirements for owners and operators of critical infrastructure. And specifically, they must now report all major security incidents to CISA, the uh, Center for um, Infrastructure and Security Agency, within 72 hours, as well as report any ransomware payments within just 24 hours. And this that 72-hour window was actually increased from the originally proposed 24 hours. Uh, after some of the, the proponents basically said that that was untenable. Uh, now, there's still a bit of work to do. CISA has to define what, quote, significant incident even means. And there still appears to be some frustrations on both sides, with some folks claiming 72 hours is too long to allow others to react to this information, while they're saying 72 hours is too short to even be realistic. Um, but some of the other benefits is it gives CISA subpoena authority to compel disclosure from organizations that they believe were impacted by cyber attack. Uh, like when you see someone leak on the dark web that they hacked the uh, colonial pipeline, if they haven't reported that incident, CISA can now compel them to do it. Uh, Congress originally or decided to go with the subpoena over fines just to make sure, understandably, CISA maintains good partnerships with the private sector. You don't want, you know, it tends to sour relationships if suddenly the person you've been working with is fining you tens of thousands of dollars for not complying. Um, that's not the only bit, though. So the FBI director, Christopher Ray actually complained that uh, the provision actually uh, precludes their organization, the FBI's use for a lot of the information. Basically, uh, the, the new law says that any trial, hearing, or other proceeding uh, in or before any court cannot use any information obtained from this disclosure at the federal or local level, um, which, I mean, I guess for the FBI, that is a bit concerning because this is potential information source for you. Um, additionally, the last bit's on here. So the House and Senate just passed a bill that also enables the Justice Department to collect statistics on cybercrime, including tasking the Census Bureau to add questions about cybercrime to the National Crime Victimization Survey. So... A lot of U.S. law going on here, but taking a step back, like, what are your thoughts, Corey? 72 hours, is that appropriate for breach disclosure for a, a critical infrastructure organization? <laughs> you think so? I mean, within the time where you've identified the incident, uh, at least reasonable suspicion that an incident has occurred, like, I feel like it, it, they're not asking you to give every detail, but just say, hey, CISA, there might be something going on here. I feel like that's probably doable. It's, it's, a, it's very fast. It's three days. Uh, by the way, I meant it's quick as in a good thing. Usually we hear about breach disclosure 90 days later. Uh, granted, this is not, isn't not necessarily breach disclosure. But uh, anyways... I was saying 72 hours is quick, as in, if you can do that, that's great. That's much better than the average disclosure of things. I do worry that, you know, what is a significant incident? Uh, uh, we just got done working, by the way, with uh, government agencies as we headed up in this, and we really like them. We actually uh, interact with CISA quite a bit uh, on non-WatchGuard related things too, but it's a great organization. Uh, I do think things are nuanced, though. Let's say, for example, Mark, 
you know, I, I guess they do do say some of the significant incident things. But what if you get uh, ransomware on one computer that's not part of your network and is not really an important part of the critical infrastructure? Is the CISA now going to get a deluge? Uh, we track every incident. We have to follow ISO 2701 standards. And when we track an incident, that means we have to have a report to go with it. Uh, we have to do a debriefing on how it was handled. We have to have an evidence folder with every little thing about it. And we do that because it's part of our compliance. And yet some of these issues are a uh, phishing email was received, uh, a user clicked on it, but actually we were able to remediate them getting, the, they're, they're small incidents that aren't really a big deal. So my only worry is, are they going to get all these reports about just little ransomware infections on computers that ended up not touching any important data and were quickly recovered. I feel like their intention is they want to know about the colonial pipeline or the aluminum smelter, the ones that literally bring down your organization, you know, and I get why they want to know about those because that infrastructure is big. But is that what it means by significant? Uh, it has to be one that actually is affecting all of the company's critical infrastructure and not the many tiny little incidents that incident handlers like you and me that are looking at a SIEM or however you pronounce S-I-E-M every day. Because you do see a lot of things that are technically incidents and that might require uh, a documentation, but really aren't risks to the business itself. Yeah, I guess that's my response. Hundred percent. Like, devil's in the de the devil's in the details of what they really want, and it is going to come down to how they define that significant incident. Um, the good news is CISA does tend to work with the private sector on their definitions for things like this. Like I'm willing to bet they will come up with something, solicit, solicit comments, and then tune it a little bit better before they actually start enforcing it. But at the end of the day, like the whole point of this is for information sharing to protect others in the same industry, basically. So CISA knows what is out there targeting folks in critical infrastructure sectors so that they can turn around and provide defensive guidance for others to make sure that whatever happens doesn't widely spread and take down something that is literally critical for our national security interests. Um, now, I mean, when you think of critical infrastructure, I know we've touched on this before, like I tend to think of, you know, colonial pipeline or like power distribution, it does include quite a bit more. Like, for example, information technology is technically a critical infrastructure. Oh, yeah, we, we know that. <laughs> Healthcare, communications, commercial facilities, car manufacturing. Like there's 18 different categories in here of, or I guess 16 that are uh, technically encompassed within critical infrastructure. These rules will now technically apply to. So there is a decent chance that depending on the size of your organization, you might be in a spot where you're soon going to have to respond or report critical incidents to CISA. And while I get it, it's a burden at the end of the day, like it is for the net benefit of the entirety of our country to help defend others in a similar spot. So, I mean, I guess with that said, wrapping things up today, make sure you patch your systems, close management access, and be prepared to converse with CISA if you've got a critical incident going on. Man, that was a, a good one. I don't know. How do we sign off on this one? Good luck, everyone. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter, 
I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will not hear from us next week while a couple of us are on vacation, but you will hear from us the week after. Ciao.